Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Theology Mom podcast. We have finally arrived at the third and final installment of this teaching series that I've entitled One Nation Under God. And we've been doing a uh, deeper dive into the complicated relationship with church and state. In part one, I offered some thoughts on the question, is America a Christian nation? In part two, we addressed the question, what is God's design for government? And boy, oh boy, are we continuing to live in a crazy cultural moment. So we're going to be brave tonight. We're going to talk about some things. And in this third and final installment of the series, we're going to try to apply some of the principles that we've laid out in parts one and two and answer Three big questions that I think many Christians are asking right now as we try to navigate this tricky cultural moment. So with that said, let's get into this. We're going to step through three questions tonight to help apply these principles that we have been learning together in the first two teachings uh, in this series. So question number one we're going to be tackling is... Must I obey and pay taxes to a godless government? It's a very important question right now. A lot of people writing into me with some version of this question. So I thought we would tackle it together. Now, we live in a country where our tax dollars go to support many things. Some of them we might agree with. Some of them we might not. Some of them... uh, I think probably violate God's standards of justice. As of this week, my hard-earned tax dollars are now going to fund abortions, not only here in this country, but all over the world. Um, They are probably going to fund federal employees very soon being being forced to go through mandatory critical race theory trainings. Uh, I consider critical race theory to have some foundational problems and contradictions with my worldview as a Christian, not because I don't think racism is a problem. I do think racism is a problem. I just don't think that critical race theory is necessary to identify the problem or to provide solutions. My tax dollars also fund a lot of prisons, which quite honestly, I have some serious questions about the justice of some uh, sentencing practices. All of these issues make me feel frustrated at times to think about um, my hard-earned tax dollars going to fund these things. I feel very sad. And I think, um, you know, more unfair, unjust taxes are coming. And this raises the question, must Christians pay taxes that they think fund unjust ungodly causes. Now, this question is tricky, and I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about how to answer this question. I have some thoughts, and I'm going to share those thoughts with you. Uh, You can agree or disagree and weigh it out. That's totally fine. And I think there is a bit of a tension for us as Americans on this issue, because there's a sense in which our whole country was founded because we revolted against what we saw as unjust taxation. And um, we decided that, in fact, we were going to war because we were going to protest unjust 
taxation. However, I am not using the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, our founding documents, as wonderful as they are. And I talked in the first episode of this series about how I do find some broad agreement between Christianity as a worldview and some of our founding principles. But I look to Scripture first. So my life is informed by Scripture first, okay? So the where we are going to start this conversation about taxation is with Romans 13, not the Declaration of Independence. So let's read from verses 1 and 2 of Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So notice the repetition there. Paul really wants to drive this point home. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the text here is concerned with civil obedience. Okay. It is the responsibility of every true Christian to submit themselves to the earthly sphere of authority and earthly spheres. We, we probably go with many spheres. We move in and out of our workplace, our family, our church and the state. So God wants his people to see that these spheres of authority come from God himself. Again, God says there is no government. There is no authority except that which has been established and instituted by God himself. Now, again, I get it. It's a very difficult message to hear, especially as Americans. We have a certain emotional sensibility that has been formed in us because our country was founded in a significant way because the, our, the population of our country rebelled against King George. We didn't like his taxation policies. Um, and we don't like the prospect, we don't like to think about the idea of obeying a wicked, godless government. And yet we also have to grapple with the reality that these words were written by Paul while living under a government that was not exactly a model of biblical justice. Rome was a secular and corrupt government. And Paul is telling the Roman Christians, be subject to that government. And again, why? Not because the government or its rulers were righteous, just, or fair. It's because it brings honor and glory to God, whose authority stands behind all human governments. Now, we might be able to explain this principle away if Romans 13 was the only passage in scripture that talked to this, but it's not. Again and again, we are told to honor the authority, the king, the state, as we call it now, and subject ourselves to governing authority. Let's look at a few other passages together. We're going to look at the words of the Apostle Peter, which echo those of Paul in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. So why do we do these things? It's for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority 
or to governors, lesser authorities who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. These are the things that ought to shape our thoughts. These are the principles that ought to shape our thoughts. Not the Declaration of Independence first. Not the Constitution first. Scripture first. Okay? So when we, if we're having thoughts about preserving our country more than we're having thoughts about, okay, how do I honor the authority that God has put in my life? That's a time for us to step back and ask a little question. Likewise, Jesus also taught that he wanted his disciples to submit to the authority of Caesar. We see this in Matthew chapter 22. There's this whole story where the Pharisees, they try to trap Jesus and they, they uh, sent their disciples, their followers, uh, along with the Herodians. And the Herodians were kind of the, the, the leaders, the representatives in this story of kind of the state, the secular government. The teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and you teach the way God, the way of God in accordance with the truth. Okay. So he says, tell us your opinion. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, says, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? It's a trap question. You get these when you work in the realm of apologetics all the time. I call them trap questions. So it's really just a trap question. But even so, Jesus answers it. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. They asked him, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they went, they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So what's being said here? How could God ordain and allow a, a, a godless government? That's a very important question. How do we respond to this? Jesus basically tells us to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He isn't telling us to give a king his due when his taxes are used for just causes or when the king is righteous. No doubt Jesus's disciples would have struggled with this teaching too. After all, they had a former tax collector right in their midst, one of the 12. Uh, He had probably collected taxes from some of them in Galilee. Uh, They might have known each other before they were the disciples of Jesus or at least been aware of each other acquaintances. It was probably true that Matthew kept a certain percentage of those taxes for himself, getting rich off the wicked and corrupt tax system of the Romans. And what Jesus is saying here is God wants his people to pay even unjust, onerous taxes paid to wicked leaders and used for unjust causes. It's a very hard teaching. Very hard. Uh, One more critical passage I want to look at uh, from the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has this exchange with his disciples about the matter from Matthew 17. That's a very odd little story. It's only recorded here in Matthew's gospel. But I think Jesus's point 
here is that he wants his people to trust him to provide for all their needs, even unjust taxes. Um, after Jesus uh, and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, so it's in the north, it's in the Galilee area, the, collect- the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? He says, yes, he does. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings on earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or others? From others. In other words, often kings will collect taxes from lands that they conquer. That's often what they do. When the children are exempt, then the children are exempt. In other words, the citizens are often exempt. But so that we may not cause offense. Listen to this reasoning that Jesus gives. So that we may not cause offense. Go to the lake. Throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Give it, take it, and give it to the tax for my tax and yours. It's a very strange little story. (laughs) But I think that what Jesus' point here is that even if the tax is unjust, God wants us to trust him for all our provisions. He doesn't want us to be so worldly minded that we forget who is the real king. The real king that stands behind everything is God. Remember, that was the point that we made in part two, that all authority belongs to God. And so even when we are involved in these situations that seem very unjust, God says, it's okay. Trust me to provide for all of your needs. In fact, we see this echo in Philippians chapter four. It says, I am amply supplied. Paul says, now I've received from Epaphroditus, the gift that you sent. They are fragrant offering an acceptable offering, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that God's people would be used by God to provide for his needs and he could pray for them that God would provide for their needs. That's the nature of the body. He uses us to provide for our needs, but we trust in him. I know it might seem like we trust in a paycheck. It might seem like we trust in God to provide through our jobs, but really that's just the means that God is using to provide for you and your family. But ultimately your faith should be in God to provide for all of your needs. His plan is to provide for the needs of his people. And sometimes that'll be through each other. Sometimes that'll be through a job. And sometimes in supernatural ways, like a coin inside of a fish's mouth. So the bottom line here to all this is that as Christians who live in an ungodly secular government, we are commanded repeatedly to be humble, hardworking citizens who live quiet lives marked by love, marked by caring for the needs of others. And I'm just going to quickly flash up a couple of references here along these lines from 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, lead um, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. This is how God wants his people to live humble and quiet lives. We're going to go to second Thessalonians three for one more. We command you 
Brothers, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and not living according to the teaching you receive from us. Follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anybody's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so we wouldn't be a burden to you. Um, so everyone should follow this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Some of you have become idle and disruptive. You're busy bodies instead of being busy. Such people we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down and earn the food you eat. Never tire of doing what is good. And those people who don't obey this instruction, don't associate with them in order they may be feeling, they would feel ashamed. Do Yet do not regard them as an enemy. Don't cancel them. Just warn them as you would a fellow believer, a brother and sister. This is how God wants us to live. This is the reputation he wants us to have being quiet, peaceable, hardworking, diligent people. I'm not sure that's our reputation right now. I'm not sure that's how our culture sees us. So that's something to reflect on, to reflect on these words. So our answer to our first question tonight, must I obey and pay taxes to an unrighteous government is yes, we must. Although there are some exceptions to this, and we will discuss those in the second part of this teaching. Okay, so let's move on to question number two. At what point? The the first point was about civil obedience. Okay, so our second question is, is what point do Christians engage in civil disobedience? Okay, that's a question that many people are asking right now. When do Christians disobey a tyrannical and corrupt government. All right. So here's the principle. Here's what you want to walk away with is we engage in civil disobedience when the government tells us that we must do something that contradicts our faith or when the government tells us we must stop doing something that our faith tells us to do. Okay. So those are our two principles. When the government tells us we must do something that contradicts our faith, or when they tell us that we must stop doing something that contradicts our faith, that our faith directly tells us we must do. All right. So there's a few examples in scripture of civil disobedience against the state that we can look to. When Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives in the first chapters of Exodus to kill the Jewish babies, that was a command that the Hebrew midwives could not obey because it would have caused them to break God's law against murder. So they engaged in civil disobedience. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the image set up by King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, that was civil disobedience. That would have broken God's law against worshiping other gods or worshiping humans. When Peter and John told the Jewish leaders that they would not stop preaching in the name of Jesus in the early chapters of the book of Acts, and then they went out and and they kept healing and preaching in the name of Jesus, that was civil disobedience. In this case with Peter and John, these religious leaders were telling them to stop doing something that Jesus had commanded them to do. Stop preaching in that name, stop sharing the good news. Now, engaging in civil disobedience can have consequences, okay? 
Uh, Some of these consequences might be severe. Peter and John were beaten. All right. These things don't come without a cost. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace. Now, in that case, they were saved. No harm came to them. Peter and John, they got flogged. They lived through it. it. Civil disobedience could result in job loss or even death or imprisonment. Civil dis- We cannot think that civil disobedience will have no consequence. I'm getting so many letters right now from people saying, well, how do I not comply with this thing that my culture is asking me to do, but then have everything be rosy and okay in my life? That's it's probably not possible. So if you're going to engage in a situation where you think civil disobedience is required, you're going to have to think up front, how am I going to count the cost of the consequences? And just a few short years after Paul wrote the very words that we read a few minutes ago in Romans 13, the government began to persecute Christians in the mid 19 or in the mid sixties of the first century Nero the Caesar blamed the Christians for burning Rome, even though he was probably the one responsible for it. Um, even so, the Christians were scapegoated. They were marginalized. And in fact, Nero was the, was the one who killed the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, both men that we have quoted tonight in this teaching. Um, and these were the very men who told their fellow Christians to obey and respect the government, and yet they were just a few years later put to death by Nero. And later, in later decades, when when Caesars told Christians that they must proclaim the phrase Caesar is Lord, they engaged in civil disobedience. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. This became a ground to marginalize Christians again. And it was a totally socially acceptable, morally, it was looked at being as a moral good to not do business with Christians, not allow them to participate fully in society. And in some cases, round them up, put them to death. Why? Why did these things happen? Because the Christians knew that by saying Jesus is Lord, they were not going to make the state a bigger authority than God. That would be something that directly contradicted their faith. And so they took that stand. They, they paid their taxes. They lived quiet lives. They tried to live peaceably. But then there was the line that they knew, okay, I can't, I, I can't go this far. So even though the Christians could say, look, our government tells us to pay our taxes. Or I mean, look, our, our religion tells us to pay our taxes. It tells us to obey your laws, Rome. There are some things that we cannot do. And one of those things we cannot do is we cannot worship the government. So back to our question in our own moment, when it is appropriate to engage in civil disobedience, when the government tells you to do something that contradicts the Christian faith, or when it forbids you from doing something that God commands. Now, many people are wondering right now if we're heading uh, increasingly toward living in a soft totalitarian state that will and that is going to require Christians to actively resist, potentially engage in civil 
disobedience? I think it's a fair question for Christians to be asking right now. And I think that, you know, as we reflect on that, we want to be very careful and informed and not just in a knee-jerk reaction, emotional posture. We want to be truly informed by Scripture and having our thoughts shaped by Scripture and not just the Declaration of Independence or our founding documents, okay? So we've, we've got to make some careful distinctions there. Now, depending on what state you live in, there are various restrictions in place about large group gatherings, And these restrictions have a direct impact on church gatherings, which is something that Jesus commands us to do. He tells us in the book of Hebrews not to forsake the gathering together. And that's been the long practice since the beginning of the church to gather on the Lord's day, to sing songs and to read scripture together, to pray together and um, partake in the Lord's supper and baptism. So, This is a very good, like, practical example that I'm going to try to look at here of the question of churches meeting in person and try to bring some of these principles to bear on this question. Now, talking about the churches meeting in person question is connected to the mask question. So in all honesty, I might regret this whole conversation later if people start getting crazy in the chat. Don't get crazy in the chat, please. Um, just try to listen, okay, and walk with me a little bit through this as we try to talk about this issue of whether churches should gather and how we can use the spheres of authority framework that we developed in part two of this series to help us think this through. Now, there's at least two foundational questions in play here for this discussion. One is, what is the sphere of responsibility that healthcare belongs to. So last time we talked about the spheres of responsibility and we talked about how there was the individual and there was the family relationships sphere. There was the, the work and the church and the state and that God had appointed each of these spheres with different responsibilities. And so the question is, is, what sphere of responsibility does healthcare belong to? So of these spheres, which sphere does healthcare belong to? This is the big question. The second question is who's in charge of telling the church to meet? So here's the sphere of the church. Who's in charge of telling them where to meet or when to meet, if they can meet, if they're allowed to gather, okay? So these are two of the major questions we have to think about. Let's start with the question of healthcare. Now, the common medical practice has historically been that healthcare decisions are primarily an issue of individual choice. So if I were to look at that graphic again, the it would be the realm of the individual. That's where healthcare lies. So if I want to be an alcoholic, ruin my body, that's my choice. If I want to be obese or if I want to lose weight, those are my choice. The state doesn't intervene. Now, my family might try to persuade me, you know, to get over my addiction. It's harming the family and all that sort of thing. 
But ultimately, it's my choice. I'm the one that has to choose to make different choices. However, there are instances where a communicable disease does become a state issue when someone who knows that they have a communicable disease and they're reckless in their contact with others. And in some cases, with some communicable diseases, this can actually be a prosecutable offense. People can go to jail if they purposefully infect others. And so in that sense, healthcare can become a state issue where the state has to intervene to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. But things get exponentially more tricky here in our country because we have introduced third parties who also have interest in my healthcare decisions, such as insurance companies and even the government. If the government, if I'm getting my insurance through the government or the government is paying for my healthcare, then they can also tell me that I need to maintain a certain weight or quit smoking or any number of other things in order to get treatment for problems. And into this complicated mess comes the mask issue. If I believe that healthcare decisions, whether good or bad healthcare decisions, are primarily an issue of individual choice, and if it's true that wearing the mask is a matter of protecting myself from getting a virus, whether or not I wear the mask would be seen as my choice. Whether I want to gather with 100 people in a closed room, it could be seen as my choice. That's a risk I wanted to, I'm willing to take. And if I want to protect myself and wear a mask, then that's my choice because I want to minimize my risk. But again, that's an individual decision. However, if it's true that wearing the mask is primarily about protecting others from my um, contaminants, because a huge percentage of COVID infected people don't have symptoms, so they don't know that they're infected, then not wearing a mask could be reasonably seen as putting others in a potentially dangerous situation. And in that case, some people would argue that mask wearing is actually not in the realm of individual responsibility, but rather falls to the state because it's an issue of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty. This would then give the government warrant to possibly fine people for not wearing masks. So mixed into all of this word salad and complication is the question of science and then what public policies are built on top of that science. Can you see how there's a lot of layers here? This is a complicated issue. And the question of whether the science is well understood or still developing or both, because some things are more well understood than other things. And then what policies do we develop to deal with the situation to minimize the risk while scientists are investigating and learning more. And then there's the spiritual component of love for neighbor. That might also be relevant because according to God's law, part of loving my neighbor means I don't want to act in a way that is malicious toward them, that would purposefully infect them. So my point here is not to arbitrate the mask issue. It's, it's just to use this as an illustration of why this is so complicated. 
And how you think about the issue of sphere sovereignty affects how you answer the mask question. Now, we have to get to the question of gathering for weekly worship as a local body. It, it, the, the mask could be seen as kind of a, a remedy to allowing more safer gatherings as, as a local church body. And it has been the historic practice of Christians since nearly the beginning to gather on Sundays and, and in honor of Jesus's resurrection and, and be the local church. And the people that God has appointed to the sphere of authority in the local church are the elders. They are the ones who knows the needs of their specific community. And the decision for Christians to meet doesn't belong to the state. Now, there have been times in history, however, when churches had to stop gathering temporarily due to pandemics. Pandemics are not weird or strange. They happen about on average, every hundred years or so. So what we're going through right now is unusual for us, but it's not unusual. So the question for how the local church deals with these things, how do we meet people's spiritual needs while also addressing physical dangers? This is not the first time the church has had to deal with this. So I think that some of these things might need to be dealt creatively. Um, but I think there's some possibilities by looking at history. We can get inspiration. We can get ideas. During the great European plagues, priests would hear confessions from a safe distance. They, they would engage in social distancing. <laughs> they would say the mass in the street and people would come stand in their doorways so they could hear it. Um, they, and because they viewed the Lord's Supper as vital for spiritual health, because they were sacramentalists, priests had to find creative ways to deliver the elements to them in a way that was hygienic. And there's a cool little blog post that I found here, and Bob's going to put it up on the screen, uh, written by a thoughtful Catholic um, about these issues. And it's kind of coming from a book here um, that talks about some of these things about the plagues in Europe and how they how they dealt with that. So there's some some brief thoughts there. But my point here is that this is not a new problem. And the reality is that sometimes it takes scientists a while to figure out how a particular disease is transmitted, what precautions are necessary. And we're adding a, a level of complication when we're trying to have church leaders make decisions about health issues. This is a complex matrix of issues. And the truth can take some time to discern and opinions can differ in the meantime. So again, my purpose here is to reveal a deeper principle. The question of meeting in person and mask wearing, I think, is only the symptom to a larger problem. And this is what I think the real issue is. I actually don't think the real issue is about mask wearing and meeting in churches. I think that these issues have become avatars for deeper, more important and profound ideas. And that is questions related to sphere sovereignty, related to authority of spheres. I think that what's happening right now, and this is my opinion, okay? I think that many Christians have a growing concern about two decades of liberal drift in our country. 
And some of them have decided to draw the line in the sand on these issues about mask wearing and the whole church meeting in person and not having any modifications. I mean, we can just look at history. Modifications are okay. We will survive modifications. But some people are drawing a line in the sand of we are not going to have modifications in order to meet for church. And I think that what's happening, again, this is my opinion, is that that some Christians are deciding they are not going to give any more ground to what they see as government overreach, that the government is trying to come into their sphere. They see this as the government trying to put itself in the role of God. So I'm going to have Bob put my other graphic up of the alternative. No, the, um, the state graphic. Yeah. So I think that what some Christians are deciding is they're drawing a line in the sand on this issue. They're saying the state is not God. We will not allow the state to reign over our church or my individual medical decisions. And I actually don't think that this is really that much about science. I think science is a cover story for trying to provide support for drawing the line in the sand. But I don't actually think that this is a question or a debate about good science versus conspiracy theories. I actually think this is a question about who's who's in authority. That who's calling the shots in what realm of authority. And I think that there are some Christians who have decided to draw a line in the sand and saying, we are going to back, we are not going to back up. We are not going to take this anymore. And this is the issue they have decided to plant their flag on. That's a theory. That that's what I think is happening. And I think that the issue of of not meeting for church with modifications, shunning that, making fun of that, saying that's a compromised position, just doesn't hold up historically. But I think that um there are people that see it as symbolic and they see the mask wearing as symbolic. They see, they see these as issues that we will not, we're, we're not going to budge. We're not, and so this is what's causing a lot of division. My hope in this moment is to help us maybe be a little less tribalistic, a little less shaming, a little less knee jerk reaction, being all up in our feelings and become more understanding about where each other are coming from. Maybe we can ask better questions. Maybe we can have more empathy. That some people on one side see mask wearing as a state issue because they think that they are not being properly protected. And I, I know immediately that devolves into a question about the science. I get that. But but try to see it first from the position of sphere sovereignty is who decides, who arbitrates these things. And the church matter is who is in charge of that? When is it appropriate to engage in civil disobedience? Is the government forbidding me to do something that Jesus commands by telling my congregation that we have to meet with modified situations? I would say no. Right now, congregations can meet in a modified way. They can meet on Zoom. They can meet in parking lots. They can meet indoors but socially distant, depending on where you live. Even if you belong to a sacramental church, these situations are not overly dissimilar to what the church has faced during the plagues in the past. I attend a sacramental church. They have sorted it out how to still engage in the sacraments 
um, while in California, one of the most restrictive states in the union. Yes, it can be inconvenient, but churches are not being completely singled out yet. Even so, I think it remains the decision of the local church elders to make these decisions under the authority of God, because God is the one who has put the elders in charge of the church. I don't believe it's the job of the state to make that call. Now, if the state comes in and says no meeting in person at all, you can't meet. Okay, well, then that might be a different conversation. Um, if, if they start making more statements that seem sort of permanent, that might be a different situation. But as it stands right now, I think they're just telling us to meet in a modified way as they are also telling restaurants and other places. So that's my opinion on that and trying to bring the issue of sphere sovereignty to bear on a very complicated issue. Um, As, let's see, as congregants, you know, I would say your job is to obey the authority that God has put in your life and through the elders of your church. If your church says, let's meet with modifications, honor that. And don't freak out <laughs> just because they're, they're not doing it maybe in the, quite in the way that you, that you think that they should. Now, I recognize at some point it might become necessary to actively go against the state as they exercise increasing control over spheres of responsibility that don't belong to them. I get that. And that is a very real thing that could be on our horizon, but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. All right, let's move into our third question for tonight. Third question is, is American patriotism idolatry? This is a question that I've just seen pop up just especially in the last few weeks. And I thought this would be a good question to end the series with because it circles us back around to where we began in part one. There are widespread accusations from big names in what I call Big Eva, the kind of the evangelical high-financed machine, that Christian nationalism is idolatry. Is this a sin that must be repented of? Now, at the top of this series in part one, I mentioned the whole kind of peculiar Jericho march. I called it a Jesus pep rally thingy. And I also made a statement at the beginning of that stream that I haven't seen anyone who worships Trump. And I don't think that patriotism is the same thing as idolatry. Well, after the events of the last couple of weeks, I stand corrected. We need to have some real talk here about idolatry. Now, In the mouths of big Eva personalities, it seems like Christian nationalism as a term is being used to kind of be thrown around um, as a cover for white supremacy and racism, but they don't really give any specifics of how this works. Um, I've looked over many people's Twitter feeds for a definition of Christian nationalism. I've seen a lot of accusation but not a lot of definition. And so for a lot of these people, quite honestly, I think this is just a labeling that is intended to marginalize Christians who are patriotic. And it's not very helpful. 
But I do think that idolatry of your nation can be a thing. So I'm actually going to offer a few specifics here to try to begin to offer a definition of what I think this could mean. Are you a Christian nationalist? Are you an idolatrous patriot simply because you appreciate the idea of freedom in America? No, I don't believe so. Freedom, as our country has historically conceived it, seems to flow in some ways, not always, but some ways out of the broad principles of the Christian worldview. We covered that in some detail in part one of this series. Are you a Christian nationalist simply because you serve in the military or are on law enforcement? No, I don't think so. I think the military and law enforcement can be legitimate functions of the state to help the state wield the sword of justice. We talked about that in part two of this series. Are you a Christian nationalist simply because you believe there was election fraud or you would like to take steps to ensure fair elections in the future? No, I don't believe so. Having elections that are based on truth and not fraud and good data, that's a legitimate extension of God's commandments against theft. There's commandments in the Bible against fraud. I think that ensuring true and accurate elections should be an issue that all decent American citizens should support. Are you an idolatrous Christian nationalist patriot simply because you believe that America should protect religious freedom? No, I I have an entire message on my YouTube channel about the importance of religious freedom and why I actually think it is uniquely grounded in the Christian worldview. You can check that out. Are you an idolatrous Christian nationalist if you vote for a candidate because they want to outlaw abortions? No, I think we have seen that elections have consequences, though. Biden has, with the, the stroke of a pen, gotten rid of many uh, previous policies from uh, the, the previous administration that took steps and measures to preserve life in the womb. So we know that politics is not a morally neutral endeavor. I said it's not always a morally clean and sharp endeavor. It's very messy. That said, I would say that you are a Christian nationalist when you conflate loyalty to your country with loyalty to the kingdom of God. You are a Christian nationalist if you wrap the gospel in an American flag. I think that idolatry is in play if you're using the language reserved to describe the kingdom of God, to describe the kingdom of this world. And again, I get it. A lot of Christians have grown increasingly concerned over the last couple of decades about the drift in our country into liberal and progressive ideology. And, and in reaction, I think that what some Christians are doing is they're having this kind of mixed devotion to Jesus and, and mixing it with America. And this is the problem that I see with events like the Jericho March. We see this merging of two entities into one. In order for the kingdom of God to advance or to be preserved, America must be preserved. And that's simply not true. A victory for any president is not a victory for Jesus. The cause of Trump or the cause of BLM or the cause of Biden, none of these things are the cause of Christ. 
the battle for the Senate was not a battle for the kingdom of God. That is a conflation of the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. And that is not biblical. And if I'm honest, I'm so sad because it seems like Christians are getting way more mobilized for political rallies on both sides, whether it was for Trump or for BLM, than I've ever seen Christians get mobilized with that level of energy for, for preaching the gospel or discipling the nations. So then I know the next question is going to come is, well, should we just stand back and let our country be destroyed? Shouldn't we fight for democracy? Yes, we can continue to vote. We can advocate for better election integrity. I'd like to see some conversation about that. But I think that we also have to be having a conversation as Christians about how do we resist soft tyranny when it comes to a government that wants to reach into spheres of authority that don't belong to them. And the Trump administration did that too. This is not just a Republic or this is not just a Democrat problem. This is on both sides. Both sides have issues where they violate God's law. And I think that I have made a case for how to biblically ground some of these issues, but let's, let's just keep it all the way real here. The, the growth and preservation of the kingdom of God is not dependent on the existence of America. The values of our country have at many times in its history been diametrically opposed to God's standards of justice. We have done enough as a nation to break God's laws and to incur his wrath. We have aborted more than 60 million babies since 1973. We lead the world right now in making and exporting porn. We have skyrocketing murder rates, suicide rates, and out-of-wedlock pregnancies. We have normalized sexual deviancy. And these are just our current problems. (laughs) I'm not even talking about the past sins of slavery and Jim Crow. To equate America with the kingdom of God is a dangerous and heretical error in thinking. And that, I think, is the error of Christian nationalism or idolatry. And that brings me to a very dangerous movement that I've been keeping my eye on for a couple of years now. And this is the movement of prophetic predictions during the election about Trump's certain re-election. This has done tremendous damage to the reputation of the gospel. Now, a handful of these prophets have repented, and one of the most prominent is Jeremiah Johnson, and you can read his post on Facebook, and I encourage you to to go look it up. Um, But after making this post, yeah, he received multiple death threats after posting an apology for his role in false prophesying. He he posted a very heartfelt apology, and then he, what does he get? Christians threatening him's life, saying he's undermining the faith. That is a sign of idolatry. Joe Biden's election to be the 46th president of the United States may very well be part of God's continued judgment on our country. 
when we see the massive debt that we have, the, the pandemic, the, the social unrest and chaos, these things all might be part of God's judgment against us. And all of these things started when we had a different president from a different party. It, this all might be God's wake-up call to those who trust in the protection of government more than they trust in the protection of God on both sides of the aisle. If you think that you need a government in order to bring about heaven on earth through justice programs, or if you think you need a government in order to be safe to do kingdom business, to evangelize the lost, these are both idolatrous positions. And you are putting the government in the place of God for your own self-interest. Christians must put our focus on Jesus. We must understand that our provision is from Jesus. Our protection is from Jesus. So here's my totally unsolicited advice that you are absolutely free to ignore as we move into 2021. Here's what I've got two thoughts. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God is in control. Nations rise and fall because of God's will. But no matter what happens, if his people stay on mission, the gospel will go forward. The church can thrive under any kind of government. There is revival happening right now in the Middle East under horrible, tyrannical, oppressive governments. Christianity flourished in the Soviet Union and played a huge role in it coming down in the 70s and 80s. We don't need to fear. We need to keep our kingdoms straight. I love my country. I am a very patriotic person, but I have to keep my country separate from my thoughts about my identity as a Christian. My second piece of advice is this. Don't waste the next four years blaming and engaging in endless debates online about a stolen election. That's only going to cause more strife and division and works of the flesh in the body of Christ. We have so many pastors writing to us now talking about their heartache, that their congregations are so divided. They're divided by everything. We need to find a way to unite around the things that really matter around our faith. When we become people of division, as we read earlier tonight, those are people we ought to avoid. We ought to pull them to the side and say, knock it off. There's a time and a place for division when it comes to doctrinal fidelity. And I'm all about that. But we also need to have some grace with each other. And if you want to be a kingdom-minded Christian, the most important way for you to be a blessing, to fulfill your purpose, is by obeying the two great commandments, the mandates of Scripture. The creation mandate, to multiply, fill the earth, rule and reign over creation, and the Great Commission, to preach the gospel and disciple the nations, including your children. I hope that you'll share this teaching series with someone that you know, uh, maybe with someone that you feel like might benefit from it, maybe your pastor. But I also want to encourage you, if you have a good pastor, go encourage him today. And maybe you need to sit down with him and tell
tell him you're sorry. Maybe you've posted some things on social media and you've been divided and divisive over things. And maybe looking back, you think whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you right now, maybe, maybe that's not something to be divided over. I want to encourage you to get into a conversation with the Holy Spirit. How can you stand for true biblical unity with the people um, in your area, in your local church? And how can you support your pastor who's really just trying to do his best? I'm not talking about pastors trying to lead their churches into progressive ideology. I'm talking about the pastor that doesn't get a lot of airtime and he's just grinding it out for the gospel year in and year out. And let me tell you, 2020 has been a tough year for him. Try to encourage him. Encourage your elder team. And try to be part of a solution, being a stand for unity. We might have some tough times ahead, and we might have to engage in civil disobedience, and we're going to have to be very sober-minded about when to choose those battles. We're getting very close to that in some cases. Churches, get ready that you can support the people in your congregation that are that could lose their jobs. I hope you found this teaching series helpful. Good night and God bless.